That's why TikTok is so popular. <laughs> yeah, especially, yeah, which I'm learning with my son. Are you? Yeah, he's 11. So we can expect TikToks from you soon? Well, you know, I, I'm going to stay off that one for a while. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by one of the stars in the BC legislature. A journalist turned politician, he began his illustrious journalism career in Vancouver at CKNW, then BCTV, then moved to Global, where he sat as the South Asia Bureau Chief, then the Asia Bureau Chief. He was on the ground covering events such as the Arab Spring in both Egypt and Libya. North Korean military aggression, the Mumbai terrorist attacks, the war and civil unrest in Afghanistan, the ceasefire conditions in Lebanon, the takeover of Gaza by Hamas, and so many more huge geopolitical events. Within Canada, he covered high-profile court cases such as the Air India bombing and the trial and sentencing of Robert Picton. I could fill up the hour talking about his incredible journalism career. He won several Jack Webster awards. He was part of the team that won the Radio Television News Director's National Award. He moved on from journalism to become the Director of Communications for the BC LNG Alliance, which provided voice for BC's liquefied natural gas export industry, including members such as Royal Dutch Shell, Chevron, and Exxon, a role that also required extensive engagement with First Nations in BC. He is the MLA for Richmond, Queensborough, as elected in 2017. Currently, he's the official opposition critic for ICBC, listed in Vancouver Magazine's most powerful 50 list. He is Jazz Joe Hall. Jazz, how are you, sir? I'm very good. That was very well done, by the way. You have an amazing resume. <laughs> well, There's uh, a lot that I cut out. I was getting a little tired listening to it. Oh, my <laughs> God, where did I find the energy? I just turned 50, so it's kind of like... Uh, my God, where did I get that energy? I didn't want to upset you by cutting something out. No. But you know what? Like, I knew you had a remarkable career, but as I was researching you, I was even more impressed. Like, you are a remarkable Canadian. Oh, thank you. Very kind of you. Very kind of you. Still trying to contribute, still learning, still making mistakes. Absolutely. That's and, all part of it. Uh, the half a life, like I said, is as I've gotten older, actually, the half a life for me is just take the chances. If you make a mistake, get up, dust yourself off. And go at it again. I've become, I've become more philosophical about it. It probably I would have it. bugged me, but um, making mistakes now, I'm much, uh, I deal with it a lot better than I used to. Yeah. Yeah. It was tougher on myself. Well, I appreciate that insight. I appreciate you being here. There's one thing I have to ask you right off the bat. Yeah. And I want to make sure I get this right. When did you make the decision to come onto this podcast? Was it a week before, two months before, three months before? That's what the people of British Columbia want to know. When did you make the decision? When did you make it though, sir? When did you make the decision? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think about that for a second. Oh, I got it. 2013. 2013. And so just in case... Someone thinks I short-circuited there or something yeah. happened. I was I paying, short-circuited, actually. <laughs> I was paying homage to you grilling Adrian Dix about the Kinder Morgan pipeline in 2013. A classic moment in BC media, BC politics history. Yeah, and you know, most people who ask me about that, no plan. 
to go at him aggressively. <laughs> I mean, I, I was sipping a latte in a separate studio right yeah. after the radio, during the radio debate. Mm-hmm. And um, and my voice was a little higher because I w- didn't have a microphone with me. I was next to our cameraman, so the mic will pick it up, but you got to raise your voice a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but I just, I just had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you letting me relive that classic moment with you. That was really fun. Andrew Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. The leader of the BC Liberals, I like him. Mm-hmm. He says that he's willing to talk about anything political, governmental, to anyone. He's been on this program twice. He doesn't shy away. We both had a good time. Mm-hmm. He was here. He does, however, find himself in positions where the public and the media criticize him for being out of touch or elitist. Mm-hmm. The wacky comment about renting, the characterization of domestic violence as tough marriage, the where's John Horgan comment that he made on this show. And to be fair, he does walk things back with the exception of the latter comment that he made on this show. Mm -hmm. When you look at Premier Horgan's current favorability in the polls and public opinion polls, and you look at these gaffes from Mr. Wilkinson, Mm -hmm. you know, even Christy Clark's former press secretary is calling him out on CKNW. Jazz, I want you to level with me. Mm -hmm. As much as you and I might like him, is Andrew Wilkinson the right person to lead the BC Liberals into an election? Absolutely. And I'll tell you why. Sure. Um, first of all, it's in, in any media environment, especially today, words matter and have always mattered. And every single word matters now. It's parsed and it would be dissected 20 years ago uh, in a Walter Cronkite type television show or the Daily Columnist or Daily Newspaper. Today you have partisans from both sides mm-hmm. dissecting every word. And then you've got more conversations, the more talking you do, the more trouble you can get into. <laughs> uh, no, at the end of the day, Andrew comes from immigrant parents. Uh, he's made something of his life. And he shouldn't have to apologize for being a doctor and a lawyer and being well-educated. Uh, and that doesn't mean you're out of touch at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. He's got three kids. Uh, he wants them to have a good life. Uh, you don't get involved in this life, take a pay cut, and say, I'm going to put, put up with a tremendous amount of scrutiny because I don't care or I'm out of touch. <laughs> you learn along the way. And leaders have that um, tr- um, spotlight on them at mm-hmm. all times. All MLEs do. But when you're the leader, especially, you especially do. So I think there's always a learning process for every leader. Mm-hmm. And I saw that with Gordon Campbell. I saw that with Glenn Clark. I saw that with Jill Desange. I've seen it with Mike Harcourt. I saw it with Christy Clark. Uh, you go through a few leaders. Sure. And you see sort of the ebb and flow of leadership, right? And I wouldn't be working this hard. My colleagues wouldn't be working this hard. We didn't believe in him. And like I said, I've, I've seen leadership on corporate CEOs to labor leaders to Taliban warlords. There's, mm-hmm. you, you can actually... <laughs> You see what works. Yeah. And Andrew, when I listen to him in caucus, when you actually sit down with him, and I, like you have, mm-hmm. you bring up any policy issue, he's on it, mm-hmm. right? Like he's thought it through, Sure, right? And that's what you want. You want substantive people who know what they're talking about, who have a sense of what the world is, is like and have life experience. And he's the right guy for that. Um, you know, these comments along the way that, that, you know, he if he could probably do them over, he probably would want to restate a few things, right? Mm-hmm. But they weren't offensive to the point he doesn't get it. If someone Maybe he shouldn't have used the word wacky. Fine. You think he was referring to an earlier part in his life. And I think if you were, when you look back to your early 20s or late teens, or I did, we did silly things back then. Sure. You would, you know, I, I had uh, roommates and I think that's what he was trying to say that, look, there was a time where you do, you do, you know, you rent and you rent with two or three or four people. It's a different time in your era, in your life, where where you probably lived a little differently. You probably had patience for a little bit more. And I think that's what he mm-hmm. was trying to say. But it it doesn't. It, it's not him saying, "I don't understand the housing crisis." 
We know there's a housing crisis, and it's been uh, a challenge in the municipal uh, from municipal governments. It's been provincially as well. We all have to collectively work at this. Would Andrew have probably used a, a different uh, different phrase? Yeah, he probably looking back at it, he goes, I probably would have done that a little differently. But the sentiment and his feeling about wanting everybody to have an opportunity in this province hasn't changed. He's got three kids. He wants every single one of them to be able to live and work in Vancouver. That may not be the case. Yeah. Right. So I understand the broad narrative uh, opponents are, are going to paint, uh, about him, they would paint the same things about Gordon Campbell as well, and I'm probably around Christie as well. So, so you're saying it's par for the course, basically. It's par for the course. Um, Do you think it, he's being fairly treated? You know, uh, you know, one thing I promised myself is I don't go around moaning about the media and media coverage <laughs> because you know well, I'm, I'm asking your assessment. I'm not yeah, saying you heavy, should complain. Was he, you know, the I think in that case, um, I think what I would have, if I was advising him, I would have just said, write down your speech and read it. Mm-hmm. Right, and a guy like that who's used to being in, in front of a, a judge can talk and speak, Absolutely, and, yeah. and you know all of us can think on our feet. But one turn of a phrase, <laughs> one word that just doesn't work can sink a career, and I and it can be anything. Look, Senator Gary Hart many years ago right. was uh, hanging out with uh, a supporter or secretary. I can't remember. He was out on a yacht named Monkey Business. They explained it, but because of the glare of the media, the narrative set. Right. And the reason I say that, I use him as an example, <laughs> is many years later, I was covering the Afghan election and we had uh, election observers and I was heading back uh, after covering the election and there was a uh, formerly Senator Gary Hart, who many have said is the greatest president we never had. Mm-hmm. And he's in line with me and I'm going, how the heck did you end up in line <laughs> with me in Kabul? Yeah. But there's a guy who could have been president, yeah. but an ill-timed day off on a, a, a yacht called Monkey Business, that led to his downfall, right? Sure. So today in a media environment where there anybody with an iPhone is a reporter, right? Uh, you got to be cognizant of that. In the case of Andrew, it was just uh, probably a word he wouldn't have used. Right? Yeah. And so you got to be caught. And the problem is you got to be worried about everything. Okay, what's the event today? Where's the event going to be? Is there a concern about the event? Does this event say something that it shouldn't say, even though we we're talking about this, mm-hmm. right? So every little thing that you do is going to be scrutinized. It is the nature of what we do in in, in, in politics. So, uh, you know, I've heard people say, oh, this media outlet doesn't treat us well. This outlet doesn't treat me well. And my time, I think in three years I've been elected, I think a couple of times where I thought, you know, that could have been, that wasn't as fair as it could have been. Mm-hmm. And generally it's been uh, small town newspapers. Uh, and so isolated cases and that are unfair that I felt could have, that you felt were unfair. Yeah, no, unfair was right. Unfair is not the right term. I think it, it, it could have been more fair in what, okay, you know sure. what I mean? <laughs> or you want to call it unfair. So I don't want to, you know, I, in, in, in one case, someone said, Oh, the Richmond news doesn't treat us very well. I got to tell you my three years, they've asked tough questions, good questions, questions. I don't want, you know, I, I was kind of like, well, that, where did that come from? But part of free and open media is asking uncomfortable questions and even silly questions because mm-hmm. sometimes you never know where they take you. Yeah. But I got to tell you, with Richmond News in the last three years that I've dealt with them, they've been more than fair with me. Uh, they've been open. They've asked the right questions, I believe, and sometimes asked questions that I didn't expect, but that's part of a free and open media. So I don't ever complain about the media, even if I feel, oh God, you know, we don't look very good there. So what? You know, yeah. it's that tomorrow's another day. You go at it again. But in an environment where perception is reality and voters might not necessarily be voting on every single 
plank in your platform, mm. but they are voting based on favorability and how someone is presented. It feeling, does matter, doesn't it? Gut feeling, emotion play a significant role in how we vote, mm-hmm. right? You don't. Most voters won't read a policy book, and people can find the media that provides the echo chamber for them as well. That's part of the challenge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's part of it. It's just it's frustrating, but I also remind myself always think of the bigger picture and deal with questions that come to you. Don't hide and answer in a thoughtful manner. And I think generally my feeling with the BC public and having spoken to them and being allowed in their living room for almost two decades is they're fair people. Yeah. And um, they allow mistakes. They really do. And they're generous people. Uh, not everybody's going to be fair with you, but my general sense of the public is they can read through the BS. They can read through the bullshit. Sure. And, you know, they can say, oh, well, you know, let's kind of look, look at Trudeau for a second. That's a classic example, blackface. <laughs> There's a younger generation of South Asians, not all, mind you, that would write op-ed saying, I'm offended by this, and here's why. And it was offensive. And the prime minister acknowledged that. Yeah. But there's also an older generation of South Asian, I would argue, that says, I know what real racism is. That was stupid, but he's not a racist. Right? <laughs> right? Well, There's a pragmatic, practical response to that. Because their view as immigrants to this country is going to be a little different. Absolutely. They're going to say, Pierre Trudeau's immigration policies is why I'm here. He's generally de- done well for us, and that's, I'm just, I'm broadly speaking on that mindset. <laughs> you had to open up this yeah, can no, of worms. But I'm, but I'm saying they won Surrey, and I'm not saying all South Asians live in Surrey. They don't. Yeah. But in writings that you would think, oh, that's going to be tight now because of all this happening, they won. Yeah. So immigrant communities and the public generally can read through the BS, and I fundamentally believe that's what you have to kind of accept. I believe in just the wisdom of the voter. You don't, they're not, you're not always going to agree with them, but sure. the wisdom of the voter is the wisdom of the voter. And I, I live with that. I just don't think that older generation of South Asians, and obviously I'm talking about my own parents and my yeah. aunts and uncles, yeah. would have any connection to what blackface represents for the black community. No, not at all. Right. So their judgment on whether that is racist or not doesn't hold a ton of water with me. Because they they might not be attuned to what that symbolizes. But they vote, and they're attuned to a certain type of racism, sure. right? And at the end of the day, he didn't win a lot of that immigrant vote, yeah, right? Fair enough. And the conservatives couldn't turn it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm kind of speaking tactically, I guess. I'm not. Fair enough. Not no. moral, I'm not talking about <laughs> the deeper conversation that you're having here. Yeah. is the right one. But you're right in regards to blackface and its impact on the African-American community and just to black people. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, South Asians also know a certain racism, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Structural, yeah. institutional, and overt. Um, but so they vote on their feelings and everybody's going to be different. And for the reminder, South Asians all don't think alike and vote alike, right? Exactly, And, yeah. and that's true. But but you get what I'm saying at the end of the day? Like there's, <laughs> voters will surprise you sometimes in regards to, sometimes I've knocked on doors, they go, oh, that person's going to be like this. No, they're great to deal with and they're mm-hmm. very open and ask really good questions. And sometimes, you know, I've, I've knocked on South Asian doors and, and they've been a lot more conservative in their mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of times, even racist, um, not towards me, but just uh, other races that when I've knocked on doors, I'm like, where the heck did that come from? Yeah. We're a community, <laughs> uh, particularly India. If you come from India is, you know, as Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, uh, everybody in, is a welcome and we celebrate each other's holidays. And so I was a bit taken aback in one case. Right. And I think the guy ended up voting BC conservative said he was going to, because he just, uh, you know, for various reasons. But, and I think it is fair to say that voters look at things differently than what is presented on power and politics or CTV's power play. All those shows have 
um, affluent people generally watching yeah. them. They also have people who are politically uh, attuned, um, business leaders, but generally very small numbers for those political shows. Yeah, it, The coverage and reaction to comments made on those political shows is what makes them. Mm. But the viewership is actually quite low in the grand scheme of things compared to, you know, general interest television. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about something that does have low viewership uh-huh. and that is question period and the BC legislature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the BC legislature opens, reopens on Monday, June 22nd, the same day that this podcast will be released. I've asked both David Eby and Andrew Wilkinson about decorum in the legislature. There's a certain amount of theatrics, but I genuinely believe that sometimes it goes too far. Mm. I think that if more British Columbians actually saw a question period, they would be disappointed at how MLAs shout each other down and taunt each other and, you know, play these games. We've had a bit of a kumbaya moment in BC politics. Do you think that the members of the Legislative Assembly will slide back into old habits and the -the over-the-top drama sometimes? Or do you think we're going to see a more relaxed and maybe a more mature decorum, especially now that we are using Zoom for a majority of the members? Uh, Yes, Uh, because the... Technology forces a certain decorum. <laughs> <laughs> you but can I, shout down an iPad yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then you got somebody knocking at you at your office door and your wife going, what are you yelling at? Who are you yelling at? Um, look, it's uh, the question period itself is confrontational. Mm-hmm. It is set up that way. There is a heckling uh, because it's core some of the I mean, the bills that we debate go down to our political values. People get very emotional about them, mm-hmm. and we challenge them. Yes, there is political theater, uh, but I think there is there's a value to it in the sense that when you're asking questions, I like seeing the whites of a minister's eyes because that's where you really see, do you really know your file? Mm. Do you really know what you're talking about? And the ability to then get up after their answer and challenge them further and to challenge some of the assertions that they made are very important. Like I can literally say anything in there, I can't get sued. And there's a reason for that because they want people to be able to speak freely. Yeah. Right? So as much as people don't want to sit through the whole half hour, yes, there is um, a desire to get something onto television and media have media coverage on a particular issue. That's mm-hmm. part of the theater of it. Um, but I think there is still a value to that confrontation. You won't see as much of it, but I think you're still going to see it just differently. Maybe we're not, we're not going to be thumping our tables. Um, there'll be no heckling probably, but I think there is a value to, when you ask a question, to have a bit of motion, to express your constituents or a particular person's frustration at government policy. Mm-hmm. So that when you ask a question, words are very important but so is the cadence of your voice. Sure. And I don't have a problem using that. And that is the way the system has run since day one. Yeah. And we have a pretty good system in the grand scheme of things. You know, could democracy be better in in this province? Yes. Uh, Are there things we can do? Probably. But in the whole and whole, having covered enough governments around the world, we're in a pretty good place. We're in a quiet geopolitical cul-de-sac that has challenges. Yeah. But we're in a good place. So if the biggest worry is whether or not Jazz Joel is heckling David Eby or David Eby is heckling Jazz Joel, <laughs> uh, I, I think we're okay. And I'm not trying to make it out to be some systemic problem of democracy. Mm-hmm. I just think that if voters 
saw a lot of question period exchanges, they would kind of scratch their heads and go, oh, wow, this is really over the top. Like, this is quite a lot of theatrics. I don't know if voters are aware that that happens. No, what voters are aware of is that 10-second question Wilkinson or Joe Hall or DeYoung or Milibar ask, and then the response to it in Mm -hmm. the broader conversation. And we're aware of that the minute we get up. Every politician that gets up to ask a question or answer or a, in our cases, let's see if we can get this into the media because we think this is important. This <laughs> right. is where I, this is where I think the water cool conversation today is going, or mm. we believe it's going. This is where they may be talking about this stuff at the dinner table today, um, and that's part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Trying to gauge and get ahead of some of these issues, right? And so. And I look, I'm sure people sitting in the legislature watching us live kind of shake their head, go, oh my God, it, it really is adult daycare. And, and I'll be the first one to tell you, some days it feels like that. Sure. But in the grand scheme of things, it does work. I mean, you know, the questions that we ask get covered by you, you follow it up. And so it's always a start. Our questions are part of that broader conversation. Absolutely. You're part of that broader conversation. Television, newspapers, podcasts, uh, blogs, um, Facebook posts from everyday citizens. That's all part of the broader conversation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if if it was the only part of the conversation, I'd be worried. Yeah. But- all of us add something to it, right? And I think that that that's part of it. It's just before it used to be the six o'clock newscast, the the, the morning newspaper, and maybe two talk radio stations in in, in your community if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Now it's this podcast and many others. It's Facebook. It's Twitter. It sure. could be TikTok. It's never ending. It's never ending, right? <laughs> it's it's a it's a thousand thousand different. Uh, uh, pieces of media now that could, that that you got to kind of deal with, right? Yeah. So so you know, I think sometimes it's easy for folks to get a bit cynical. And uh, my greatest accomplishment in journalism was to enter an optimist and to leave an optimist. And I plan to do the same thing with politics, <laughs> even when it's challenging. But I got to tell you, we got a pretty good system here. Sure. So, and we can put up with a little bit of the shouting and yelling and heckling. Fair. We're okay. Obviously, the return is happening now because of the COVID-19 crisis. Did you think that the BCNDP government did a good job in managing the COVID-19 crisis? I think, and how would you rate them? I yeah, guess? no, I think um, it's been a public health uh, emergency. Dr. Henry has done a very good job guiding uh, the government and guiding us mm-hmm. and the public collectively in answering and uh, dealing with the broader issue, which is priority number one. We made a conscious effort to work with government to make sure that we move forward. There's not a time for politics. Uh, on March 23rd, I think it was the 23rd of March, Mike DeYoung and I went to Victoria and to the legislature, had an emergency session for two hours, and we approved $41 billion in spending, So, which hmm. means here's the nine months of the regular budget and an extra $5 billion for COVID spending. Right. Right? So there has been... Uh, We've been work, working well together. Mm-hmm. It's been really good, and I think generally it's been it's been. I think the public been happy with it. It's mm-hmm. been nonpartisan. I think we've all gotten along. It's really about X Y Z constituent saying I need help here. What government services can I get? And we've been just been working with government to make sure all constituents and businesses are able to 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 access that that money that's mm-hmm. there or in programs federally and provincially. So that's been where we've been mostly those three months. I've been working from home mostly, email, Zoom, and then making sure my constituents and everybody else can 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 be helped. Sure. We're now entering a different phase where you're going to probably see a bit more partisanship, uh, at the very least, uh, aggressive challenging of of, uh, of aggressively challenging the government. And what I mean by that is, hey, ICBC, 
a person can't drive, they can't work. Uh, when are we going to have commercial driving tests, right? Which has been in the news the last probably two or three weeks. They, I thought those came back, but not the other driving tests. They, 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 there's a written side did, but the okay. actual driving tests, because of the issues of PPE, a driver. Right. And, and so in Saskatchewan, they already started a month ago. So ICBC was a lot slower. So I've been pushing pretty hard on that. Hmm. And so that's been, been an issue. How do you plan to bring tourism back, right? And what is your plan? Right now, you saw the government announce a an online survey. Very disappointing, right? <laughs> like you just, you're four months into this, Mr. Mr. I Logan. saw your joke about the online survey. Yeah, it's, it's well, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, you try not to be flippant because you're still in the public health emergency, but this, you can see it turning there, right? There yeah. was a joke. It wasn't too harsh, I hope. It wasn't trying to be. But right now, according to the Business Council of BC, you know, 10 to 15% of our small businesses could be gone by 2021. So you've held on, you've gotten through the initial four months. Mm-hmm. But the business hasn't returned yet. You still got rent to pay. You still got employees. You've got employees you've laid off. But after they laid off for 13 weeks, they're permanently laid off, which mm-hmm. means you have to pay severance. The NDP ex- extended it from 13 weeks to 16 weeks. Well, the rubber's hitting the road next week or two. Mm-hmm. So small businesses with four, five, six employees who have laid these folks off will now have to pay severance. Mm-hmm. I have a business, uh, an events business with six employees. One employee is paid, 75% of his wages paid by the federal government. The other five are laid off. Mm-hmm. 16 weeks is going to be hit. Com- it's going to be coming. Yeah. He's going to have to pay them severance. That's $40,000 he's going to have to write a check for. You know, he may be able to hold one for another month or two after. Mm-hmm. He's done. He's bankrupt. So you can expect of the 200,000 businesses in, in British Columbia, mostly small businesses, 10 to 15% of them could be gone by the end of 2021. Right. So you're looking at 20 to 30,000 businesses failing, right? And so this is where economic recovery now plays, uh, now is the main focus, right? Dr. Henry's done a great job, and, and I'm incredibly proud that um, we have someone like her helping and guiding us through this. She's done such a good job, she's got a shoe line. Right? I mean, she's got a shoe named after. It doesn't get sure. any better than that, right? Yeah. I call it the Air Jordans of the public health set, right? <laughs> and they're beautiful shoes. And now it's about economic And are return. you going to give your friend, Minister Dix, an assist on this as well? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. No, no. <laughs> Just I'll, making sure. No, no, of course. And I hadn't, I hadn't gotten there. But actually, right. I'll, I'll go deeper than that. You know, I did a, a story years ago, half-hour special on Jimmy Patterson and Glenn Clark. Uh, in I'd moved back from China and Glenn had been made president of the Patterson Group. So he ran the sign division after his government fell, yeah. right? There's one little corner of the Patterson Group and he worked, worked as we have the president of a seven, eight billion dollar company, right? You know, when I, when I was interviewing him, I followed him for a week. I flew with him and Jimmy to London, to Bahamas, to Miami, Montgomery, Alabama, all in a week. They were doing all these quarterly meetings. Yeah. But what I sense that I got from Glenn, and he's a smart guy and I really like him on a personal level, is he's always a guy seeking redemption because mm. he was premier at 38. They introduced 200 pieces of legislation in three years. Wow. Like they were ready to change the world. And that's when the, the they, they fell, right? In 2001, BC liberals were elected. Mm-hmm. But since then, he's always been a guy, in my opinion, always seeking redemption. Mm. Now, flash forward to um, 2013 and Mr. Dix did not uh, win government. The NDP did not win government. Mm-hmm. In many ways, post-2013, Mr. Dix is also, like his former boss, <laughs> I think, has been seeking redemption. He put his focus on being a good critic, hydro critic at the time, I think it was, post-2013. And this may complete that for him, mm-hmm. the way he's handled uh, COVID with Dr. Henry, 
right? So when I was thinking about this yesterday, in many ways, the boss and uh, his chief of staff both have one very similar trajectory is I think both of them were seeking redemption in some way. Right. And have found it. You know, so that's my. Do you think take. he speaks French that. occasionally because he's eyeing a federal run? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, with Adrian, I, I find it for me, people relate to their provincial government more so than the federal government, especially here in BC, mm-hmm. right? Healthcare, education, transportation, those are things you can see, hear, touch. Like yeah. It impacts your life, right? Um, federal government handles foreign policy, transfer payments, defense. Those kind of things are kind of out there, you know, <laughs> far in the ether of this public discussion. I mean, it's there, yeah. and it's important that we elect our, the right people. Uh, but I've always viewed him as somebody who's more of a provincial uh, person. I mean, Why I is could, he speaking French, though? Do we have huge French communities in British Columbia that well, I'm unaware I think, of? I think he worked for, um, uh, when he left government in the 90s, he did work for an organization that represents French, French-speaking French people in British Columbia. Oh, okay, and, fair so, enough. So he's, he's had that, and that's great. It's an official language, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, look, uh, you could speak Punjabi, and you're going to reach a lot more people probably, <laughs> or Cantonese or Mandarin sometimes, sure. right? That's the more pragmatic practice languages, but it's an official language. It's a beautiful language, and yeah. and he speaks it. But but look, there's an audience out there for it, and so that's why probably he does. It's an official language, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the economic recovery mm. and going back to that tweet you made that was kind of a joke about the online survey, mm. when we assess the overall damage to the economy, mm-hmm. you know, which businesses will come back, which jobs will come back, isn't there some prudence to say, you know, we want to take our time to actually figure out the most effective way to spend this money. Now, I'm not saying sitting on your hands and waiting forever, but I'm yeah. just saying without being too eager and maybe wasting the money in a place where it could be more effective. Yeah, but it, this is this is a, my opinion, just a, a silly attempt at retail politics. We want to hear from you. You know, we're elected to lead. You've had four months. We know what the problem is. Right, twenty to thirty thousand businesses could fail by the end of twenty twenty one. We have three to four hundred thousand British Columbians out of work, and that predominantly hits young people and women. Right, and so you know what the problem is. We already consult. They call our MLA offices. They call ministers. We have, um, you know, the finance committee travels the province and asks, "What's the priority for the next budget?" Mm-hmm. Right. So you already know. And so far, the federal government's done all the heavy lifting. I mean, they've put so much money into the system. I think sure. it comes out to about $7,000 per person. Mm-hmm. And no one's complaining right now because we're in a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. And good for them. But like I said, we've set aside $5 billion, even here in British Columbia. This is a billion and a half that hasn't been spent. Yeah. There's no, no clarity, right? So when I talk about economic recovery, I want clarity in regards to the tourism sector. Um, we've put, you know, uh, some suggestions forward in regards to um, deferring the PST EHT. Uh, we've we've got the WorkSafe BC that perhaps should be subsidizing the PPEs in regards to the cost that the, comp- the businesses has to deal with. Think outside the box. I mean, think we're, we're in a hundred once in a hundred year pandemic here, right? Yeah. It's not time for silly little surveys. I mean, I get why we do them, and I think they're important. Don't get me wrong. So you think they should already have the information? You they should need. have it. Like we're yeah. paid to lead, for God's sakes, right? It's an. It's we're talking about not a recession, but potentially a global depression. Yeah. And we have experts within the provincial government that know the problems. Hmm. We have public servants who, who know what they're doing. The, the the prime minister and the premiers consult on a regular basis. The premier has access to federal uh, expertise as well. He knows what's going on. 
So to, to, to launch this. Why it, do you think they are then? Why do you think they are? Retail politics. It's just to see that. What look, does that mean, retail politics? Well, it means that, look, they want to be seen consulting. Um, sometimes it's data mining too. Like if you look at the survey, you know, uh, where should the spending be? And you're going to get breakdown from different parts of the province in regards to um, what a priority might be or what some voters may be thinking. That gives government hmm. interest in, in in messaging sometimes. So it's, I call it some, It's I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past them to do a bit of data mining. But it would be publicly so share available it. Yeah, but it, it's just, it's, <laughs> man, we're in the middle potentially of a global depression. I understand right? your frustration. You're gonna I'm, be, I'm trying to get what their motivation would be. You're going to be telling your kids about this, right? Yeah. And my son, who's 11, uh, is going to be talking about this to, 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 to his kids, yeah. right? Get on with it. <laughs> Spare me the survey. I mean, I just, you know, you know the smell test? You don't yeah. have to be an expert. It doesn't pass the smell test. Okay. Right? The reporter, the old reporter, me going, come on. <laughs> Survey, come on. Let's talk about another crisis that we were all reminded of last month. Last month highlighted something that Dr. Mark Tyndall told me on this podcast, which is we may have turned the corner on the opioids crisis, hmm. but it's far from over. And last month in May, it was the deadliest month in BC for drug-related deaths. 119 out of 170 deaths yeah. were fentanyl-related. This is obviously very tragic. This is another health crisis that I think needs to be attended to quite urgently. The BC Liberals have been speaking up about this, but what is the BC Liberal plan for the opioids crisis? Well, I think, you know, I think, first of all, there shouldn't be any politics in this period, right? I would agree, yeah. And, and you know, this these guys were... Um, at us uh, prior to me entering um, um, politics uh, when Terry Lake was a uh, health minister and he won an award for his his attempt and what we did as a party mm-hmm. and as a government and I understand uh, Ms. Darcy is doing what she thinks needs to be done but at the end of the day it's about finding help for these people and if it means more resources find those resources um, if it means you know it's frustrating and challenging in that is it just money that we can throw at this and it's going to solve it? I don't know if it is, right? So I think the deeper challenges for society is where do we go? What do we do? And I don't pretend to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. But when you have 170 people dying, we're not doing enough. And if this this government says that we weren't doing enough, now it's on your watch. Mm-hmm. What are you going to be doing? And, you know, I don't think, first of all, they've put enough resources at it. And the right resources in regards to, are you working with the hospitals? Are you working with the different agencies to move forward and deal with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I remind everybody as well, this is not a Vancouver, just a Vancouver issue. Every city in North America is dealing with it. In Europe are dealing with this. Um, it's a very complex issue. Um, healthcare, economics, drug policy. It's all of that. Um, you know, I, if I said you need to do X, Y, Z, you're going to solve it. I'm being disingenuous to you, right? Right. I just think that they need to do a better job in regards to if it means more resources, find the resources to do it. Um, it can't just be about virtue signaling. And sometimes I think politicians do too much of that. So, you know, I, I think look at other models around the world. Look at what Europe is doing. Look at what other cities are doing. You know, I talked to guys like Sam Sullivan, who I would highly recommend you speak to because he's had to deal with a lot of this when he was mayor as well. Mm-hmm. Dr. Wilkinson, I'm sure, will be on again and you should be charging with him. Um, you know, um, Jane Thornthwaite, um, who, you know, is just so passionate about this issue. Mm-hmm. And I hear her on a regular basis in caucus and we regularly have uh, conversations in and around this. One of the challenges I also think is just the public, and I mean this broadly, 
is my time as a journalist, uh, it was hard to do stories in downtown Eastside always. And part of it is it's got to be public interest. The public sometimes views these issues as self-inflicted wounds, you know, mm. drug, drug issues, drug use. And you don't have to go very far in any social setting and bring up this issue. No matter what strata of society you're at, people are impacted. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And there's still this stigma in regards to why people are using drugs. People still view it as a self-inflicted wound rather than a health issue. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it as well. So, you know, do I have an answer to this moment? No, I don't. I just got to know we got to keep trying, put more resources, find the right resources, and keep plugging away at this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a... It, I, I just, it bothers me because you see these fo folks and you just see so much opportunity, so much talent get wasted too, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you have to talk to mothers and dads, which I've done many times in my own community and then as a journalist for many years, and it's not just necessarily even the the drug addict, but kids at a young age getting involved in drugs, because mm -hmm. I, I used to cover a lot of organized crime. And it really is upsetting that, we're losing people. And uh, I find as I get older, it bugs me more because yeah. I see my son every time. Sure. Right? He always comes personal. I said, you know, am I doing everything as a dad to make sure he doesn't go down that path? Because every single parent who has had to deal with the death, I'm sure asks themselves the same question. Yeah. Right? Over and over again. And it means being present in, in your kid's life and, and, and trying to be as helpful as you can to people you meet every day so one of the stigmas around this issue is the idea of safe supply because yeah. you often hear whether it's talking heads or even certain politicians mm -hmm. not naming anyone but you hear certain politicians saying why do we give free drugs to people if the goal is to keep people alive shouldn't that mean a dramatic expansion of safe supply first mm -hmm. well you know i think I think there are challenges in society that those who feel that that's not the case, we shouldn't be doing that. And, and, and I don't think they have all the answers. And those who say that it's just safe supply, give all the drugs that you can, I think you're going to get pushback from voters, right? Uh, I don't disagree with you necessarily, but it's very hard uh, as an elected official to go to an electorate and say, we're going to apply, uh, provide safe drugs as much as they want. Um, we sometimes feel if you're in a, let's say a downtown Vancouver bubble, you have assume that's the mindset mm -hmm. in the rest of Vancouver or the suburbs of Vancouver or the interior, right? Um, there is not one solution. I think that's going to save us all, but I think, you know, I remember covering the, the four, the, you know, the four pillars approach that, um, Mayor Philip Owen was talking about mm -hmm. for many, many years. And I think that was the right direction. It can't just be. A dramatic supply of drugs. We've got to be able to deal with the issue of enforcement. We have to deal with the issue of counseling. We've got to, have to deal with the issue of housing. All those issues are part and parcel of that, right? Sure. And I, you know, I, I get where you're coming from. And if it was that simple, and I'd probably fight for it, but I think it's a complex, it's so complex that I think you need of all those issues. And, and government. So where do you stand on it? Because you're saying these things like, I, I probably would fight for it. But no, I, what I would, you know, I, I think, look, I, when it regards to the four pillars, I, you know, broadly speaking on a personal level, I would be supportive of, of something of that sort. I think where Mayor Owen took the city was the right way, mm -hmm. right? But we are still lacking on psychiatric help. We're lacking in housing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, counseling. 
um, and even in, 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 in healthcare as well, right? So those issues I think we need to work on. I generally view myself as a very centrist individual. Mm-hmm. I know you could call me a small C conservative or a small L liberal depending on the issues, right? Sure. But I just, I just I cling to the center in a very... Uh, I very much cling to the thing. I'm a centrist politician. I, I I cling to the center because I've seen enough on the far right and the far left. Sure. <laughs> and uh, and not only just here, but around the world. And the problem we have today is that whether you're an activist on either side, they pull, and it's harder to be a centrist. Day every day, every day, it's challenge because both solitudes pull at you. And that's one of the reasons why our politics, especially in the United States, has gone completely sideways with Trump. Mm-hmm. That it's hard to be a centrist politician. Yeah, and and that's one of the challenges we're having because, you know, those who are on let's say the far right say there's no way we should be doing this law and order, law and order, and those are saying, let's let's provide all the drugs that are required. The, 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 the solution is in the middle. Always has. So uh, let's talk about an apolitical figure then, Doctor Bonnie Henry. Obviously, she has this increased public profile, mm-hmm. liberals, NDP, whoever else. She's pretty much unanimously popular. Mm-hmm. This is a subject that's very close to her heart as well. Do you think that maybe because of her increased public profile, that will create maybe more open-mindedness or perhaps even more political will within the electorate to really get movement on this issue? Um, you know, uh, Dr. Henry has the profile that she does, A, because of the pandemic, B, because she's done good work. Uh, the minute she enters, or any person would enter, a more political... Um, I'm not suggesting that she yeah. should enter politics. I'm just okay. saying, because she's brought this up as well, and yeah. she got very emotional about this issue, yes. especially when those statistics were released. And unfortunately, I say statistics, but they're deaths. They're people yes. that died. Do you think maybe there will be a little more push from the public and may, maybe even perhaps more open-mindedness about how we approach uh, these issues? I hope so, um, because, the, you know, I, I mean, I've covered the downtown east side for two decades. And, you know, from the alleyways with street cops to social workers to, to addicts. And um, has, have we solved it? No, we mm-hmm. haven't. And what we spent? What's the, what, what do we spend here with all three levels of government? Probably close to a billion dollars, maybe less. Yeah, more. That's generally been the number. That's the most poorest postal code, and the amount of money we put into it. Now there has been some good done. I think we. Mm-hmm. I think Rich Coleman, as housing minister, did a very good job in, in 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 refurbishment of some of these hotels. We have more to do though, and I think shutting down Riverview. Um, and then not having a solution post Riverview was a huge issue as well. Um, so this has been a challenge for. Um, two decades, right? So if one person can come in and, and change that mindset, I hope they can. Um, but I think it also takes strong will within governments to do more as well. I think the NDP is trying, um, but it's got to do more, right? Mm-hmm. But if Dr. Henry can to, can lend weight behind this issue, yeah, please do so. Please do so because there's too many lives uh, at stake. Shifting gears here, one really big news item that I think got washed away in the news cycle due to COVID, mm. due to the issues around racism that we've seen here and abroad, is this $2.9 billion loss at WorkSafe BC. Mm. In very layman's terms, <clears throat> please explain to me what happened. How did almost $3 billion evaporate from this government institution? Yeah, well, I, first of all, the $3 billion, uh, I think uh, Minister Baines had to be corrected by WorkSafe. It was a billion. 
So we've just saved two billion already, right there. The minister was wrong. Okay, so it's only a billion. It's a billion. Okay. Oh, it's only a billion. Um, first of all, it's, <laughs> it's a good spin, right? Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> glaring for the minister not to know that we're running out of money. So look, if you invested a hundred bucks in Nasdaq on January first, right? Uh, that money would have dropped, mm-hmm. and I think as of last week, maybe a week before last week, I think it was you would have hit 100 bucks. Yeah. So the market's come back. Sure. So that billion dollar loss may have been initial. Some of it's going to come back or a lot of it's coming back. We have the same problem on the side of ICBC as well. Well, we've lost a billion dollars and And, no and we'll get into ICBC in a second. Yeah. So this was an investment fund that works at Yeah, had. yeah, exactly. So you know, all of these um government uh, agencies uh, that do collect dollars um put money in, have professional managers that manage the money, mm-hmm. right? So there has been a surplus there. It's taken a dip. It will come back. There's a significant amount of dollars still in WorkSafe BC. Employers put money into it every single uh, uh, year, right? And a significant amount. I think it's up to $18 billion. So the money is there. And that's why we said, look, if you're a small business owner and you're forced to buy PPE uh, for your business to open it up, well, you know, why can't you write it off with WorkSafe BC? Why can't they cover that? Mm-hmm. Like I said, once in a century pandemic. Like yeah. this is how unique it is, right? What's the use of a public agency when the public needs it? That's the point, right? Sure. So we are going to delve into that. Tell me about those investments. What have you invested in? Because um, generally they're conservative investments. Like these guys are not. That's where I'm confused. Yeah. I'm confused as to whether or not the money will come back as the of market it will. rebounds. It's like your so RSPs. You, you expect them to come back, sure, right? Sure, sure. So, and you hand it over to generally reasonable people who are going to make reasonable decisions. Now, here you have a, a multi-billion dollar government agency. They got the best help possible, mm-hmm. right? Are you telling me they said, let's go to Vegas and let, let's let it roll? No. <laughs> they got professional money managers. Yes, it took a hit, right? Yeah. But they're not going to take real risks, significant risks. They're all going to be Fortune 500 companies, bonds, um, treasury bills, all that kind of stuff, right? There's going to be a healthy mix because you have to. It's a government agency, right? Yeah. So this notion that we're not going to spend the money, that's part of the problem with the NDP. We give you a $5 billion extra to spend. There's still a billion and a half that has to be spent. They have been riding the coattails of the federal government. They haven't done anything. They've been sitting on their hands. That's the problem. Mo, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Like, you got to help people now. Like, in Manitoba, residents three weeks ago got a check for 140 to 160 bucks, 11% rebate on their on their public insurance, <laughs> right? In Ontario, uh, they've got uh, checks from 100, uh, the average check from private insurance companies, it's $150 that they've rebated, either in checks or in savings, in different types of savings. That's according to the Ontario government, who is encouraging the private companies to do so. So you got private companies in Ontario returning over $600 million back to the public. <laughs> In Manitoba, they've returned $140 to $160 check written back to residents. ICBC, zilch. That's the problem. And they said they've had 50,000 less accidents, right? Yeah. And so, and they've saved $158 million. So back to the napkin math, that's $3,000 per per, um, policy. They say they've saved about $3,000 per policy, roughly. But in 2017, the cost for payouts was about, 40,000 for accidents, Yeah, right? I think they're saving a lot more. I think they're understating the savings and blowing up the costs. Like Mm -hmm. I want to drill a little deeper when I get to ICBC estimates because it doesn't make sense to me. I think they're saving this before the next election to send some rebate checks then, Hmm. right? When, When after your rent and your mortgage, what's your 
biggest cost every month if you own a vehicle. It's it's ICBC. Yeah. Right. So those are the things that they should be doing. Instead, you got a survey, and they've sat on their hands. Right. That's like if you're going to do something, do something. Instead, it's like well, working with the federal government. The federal government's doing all the hell of work. Right. Yeah. And that's my frustration. So so I'm going to get back to WorkSafe BC in a second. But yeah. since you are the official opposition critic for ICBC. Yeah. Do you want ICBC to be privatized? Do you think that's the only option here? Um, I'm, I'm going to give you an answer that I hope is a thoughtful answer rather than a black and white answer. Because I think I think it would be wrong of me to say privatize it now. Mm-hmm. I think that's the right. And I asked that because I asked David Eby a similar question. He said privatization is off the table okay. for him. So here's my thinking. Like we ICBC gets kicked around and has been kicked around since the day it was um, invented back in the sure. early 70s, right? And part of the problem there was farmers couldn't get insurance, and it was a different era, different time. So I always believe a public institution should have public good. But if a public institution is acting like a private insurer or a private entity, what's the benefit of having a public insurer? And what I mean by that is, why are kids paying $5,000? In Nova Scotia, um, if you're an 18-year-old, and we know younger generation generally has a um, higher proportion of the cost, in regard, a higher proportion of the accidents, Right. Generally, they don't assume every 18-year-old is a poor driver or uh, is irresponsible. They get, um, they pay generally the same, maybe a little bit less or a little bit more, but they get that free accident, if you can, if, you, if I can simplify it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get into an accident, you're going to pay significantly more, sure. especially as an 18-year-old. But we're not going to assume all of you 18-year-olds are irresponsible, right? So the fact that an 18-year-old or 20-year-old today has to pay $5,000 for insurance in the burbs. And mom and dad got to help them pay it is ridiculous for a $4,000 car or $5,000 car. That's mm-hmm. problem number one. What I'd like to see is to get a panel of experts, apolitical, say, go through ICBC. Just you have carte blanche, access to everything. Mm-hmm. And I want you to come back and tell us what we, and tell us what we need to be doing differently. Mm-hmm. If they recommend privatization, let's have that broader conversation with British Columbians. Mm-hmm. But if they say you have a good public system, but it needs to be improved here, here, and here. Let's have that broader conversation, British Columbians. And I know that you only came into office in 2017, but you know that the pushback is going to be, well, the BC Liberals were very well aware of ICBC's mismanagement and a lot of these issues, Mm -hmm. and they had so many years to fix it, and they did nothing. And that has been the talking point from the NDP, which I think is almost general consensus amongst British Columbians. But the increase that you've seen under the NDP in the last three years is significantly higher than you've seen with what the BC Liberals had in those 16 years. ICBC came with the same system that we have now where kids are paying $5,000. Uh, I think they came to Todd Stone twice and Todd said, no way. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, the litmus test is always going to be, what's the kid, what's a 20-year-old going to pay? Bill Bennett used to say that, former premier. ICBC used to come up with all these ideas and he'd always come back, what's my nephew going to pay at the end of the day? And they'd tell him the 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 the, the car, charge, the cost. And he'd say, come back when that number is lower, right? So there are challenges. Look, we're more litigious. We're driving much more sophisticated vehicles which cost a lot more money mm-hmm. uh, to uh, fix. And we're distracted too. Yeah, And so technology will save us from some of it in regards to not being able to drive, let's say, um, when you have your cell phone. Like we, the machines are going to get better at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that we're the, the fines have gotten higher. So I think we're trying to change behavior. I know when I worked with um, energy companies who are very much safety focused, uh, I think it was Chevron. Any of their executives driving must put their cell phone in their glove compartment or in the trunk. 
hmm. when they drive, period, full stop. Yeah. Right? So those are the kind of things and those types of policies. I'm not saying government's going to mandate that you put it into your uh, your, your trunk. But that's, <laughs> that's where a headline right there, yeah, yeah, but that, yeah, it is. <laughs> but that's where we're going to head to, right? Yeah. And remember, the, the, the money that was um, that comes out of some of these public um, institutions go back into general revenue, which helps us. Uh, subsidize healthcare, education, sure. balanced budget. Like we're the main shareholder mm-hmm. and that money doesn't just go into the ether. It goes to pay for other programs, mm-hmm. right? And that's one of the reasons we had five balanced budgets. And the, you know, the insurance industry generally has had challenges at this particular point. You got climate change and the costs that are coming from that. Uh, you've had some insurance that have left the market. It's one of the reasons why our strata insurance is now skyrocketing mm-hmm. as well. It's a huge challenge at the moment. And we, we are all focused on that. Um, so it's, part and parcel of a lot of challenges. <clears throat> so I would argue that it was just uh, BC Liberal was management. I don't buy for a cent. So for a second. Very briefly, I want to go back to the WorkSafe BC thing. Yeah. I'm still unclear. Is the money gone or is it coming back or are you saying you don't even know and this has well, to we'll be have investigated? To, we'll, we'll have to ask an estimate. So that's where we go okay. through each department and every ministry and go, okay, line 27, what was that spending for? And is that higher or lower from last year? But Why this do you could have be a nothing story if, if it was just the money was lost in the market and it's coming back. Yeah, that's that's rebound. probably what it is. That's okay. what I think. That's what my gut tells me. I mean, it, it's not like you, this guy. These guys are invested in timeshares in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? <laughs> this is a public institution that's going to have professional money managers, as okay. I said, in T bills and bonds. It yeah. didn't go anywhere. Right, so the for ministers to say two point seven billion, all of a sudden he had to be corrected the day after by WorkSafe. It's actually a billion, and now from that billion, I guarantee a lot of that's going to come back. Or if it has, it's probably already come back. It's complicated in regards to how they invest. That's what I wanted to. Yeah, clarify. it's an, that's all. Look, do you expect your RSPs to come back? Probably yes. The market shows it. Generally, well, you'll always move up over the, over time. Yeah, it's going to come back. Right. I want to focus on you as we sort of close out this chat. You've had a really interesting career. You were in news media, you were a lobbyist effectively for LNG, mm. and now you're a public official. And I want to preface this by, by being very clear. I'm not accusing you of anything, yeah. <laughs> but there are a good chunk of people mm-hmm. that see those three professions, mm-hmm. media, lobbyist, publicly elected official, and they prefer them to be siloed, and they prefer them to be kept away from each other. And Mm -hmm. I think that there is a certain public cynicism around people that jump between Mm. those professions. And I'll be completely honest, I'm a cynic myself. So I have suspicions and not about you, but just in general. The underlying criticism here, of course, would be, well, if you were in news media and were politically motivated, you know, were you being a fair journalist? Or if you're a public official now, and you were a lobbyist in the past, who's to say you're not beholden to your former clients? Mm. We could spend all day sort of drawing up these hypotheticals about unethical yeah. relationships and whatever. Yep. But I want you to explain to me, a cynical listener, but yeah. someone who's open-minded, yep. why going from a media person to a lobbyist to a public official, drawing from your own experience, of course, is no different than any other professional route that someone else may have taken sure. to eventually hold office. Sure. That's, uh, I appreciate the question. Um, so I left uh, in 2014, I think it was. I was 44 years old. So I've been doing this for 23 years. So local radio uh, in Williams Lake to Vancouver and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, 
I was, I've done it for a long time. And one of the things that I've always enjoyed doing in the business was explanatory and exploratory journalism, which is generally longer form. Mm-hmm. And it's harder and harder to do. And my <laughs> frustration was building a little bit. So it's more sort of day-oriented, news of the day kind of stuff that was we were, we were putting more of that out. And generally with longer form stories, you get better visuals, uh, you can take a breath, and you can be thoughtful. And I was just getting frustrated. And I just said, you know what? I think it's time to move on. So with my experience in communications, traveling this province, and also my experience in Asia, which I still, you know, I've, I've always had a, a real interest in international affairs, you know? I still read, I, I'm, I still have a tendency to read international before I even get to local sometimes, mm-hmm. just because the broader global themes impact us in many ways. Sure. And so that industry at its nascent stage um, was launching. And then with my international experience... Uh, and understanding Asia specifically, there was a natural fit. So when I applied for the job and, and got it, and it was for director of communications, and I think I was listed as a lobbyist, um, but eventually I fit back into my communications positions, although I think I did lobby, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't the lead lobbyist, but I, I was part of, I was uh, registered as a lobbyist. But post that, I focused most, mostly on communications because that's what I do. But yes, uh, so that for so the move itself for me was just that it fit the what I was doing. You got an industry that wants to open up here. You're traveling the province, uh, very much focused on Asia. Mm-hmm. So there's a natural fit to that. Sure. So that was one of the reasons um, why I moved. I mean, it just was a to, to that industry was just the fit was really good, right? If you look at the background. So in in regards to to moving us to an MLA. You know, I've covered politics for a very long time, uh, different governments all over the world. Uh, I've always believed journalism is public service. Um, but I also saw in the back of my mind, they say one day, you know, maybe when I'm older, if there's an opportunity, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. Okay, it's not something I had a deep thought about. So when the opportunity came, I just sort of felt, you know what? You've got energy. You've got time. You're young enough. And uh, take a chance. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what I did. And it's just as simple as that. Um, you know, it's not like the NDP haven't had many, 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 many journalists run for them, mostly on the federal side. You know, I'm not sure locally, but certainly on the federal side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how many of them won, but they've had journalists running for them. And, you know, would you be asking me this question if I was a lawyer? Probably not, because there's lots of lawyers in politics, sure, right? Yeah. So you want people with different backgrounds, right? Um, I'm not sure. Sh- I understand coming from a higher profile background. And even when you go to leaving the media and going to work for an industry association, I was sort of representing it because I was fronting it in, in many cases. So I, my profile should have gone down, but it didn't. <laughs> you know? Well, there were ads on TV I that looked like you were yeah. having a news report. Well, I don't know about a news report, but I was talking about the, the the sort of the basics of LNG and what it does and where how we. But because you were familiarized with the public, yeah, people being see that your face, figure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then now I, I'm I'm in in in, um, in politics, and I'm very proud. One of those proponents actually got a, it was a forty billion dollar investment in this province, which is the NDP have supported. Um, and now in, in government, um, you know, just getting up in QP and handling questions and, and critic roles, and and so the profile hasn't. I was hoping it would diminish to a certain degree, but it's it's sustained, I guess. Sure. Uh, it's there. So, you know, every one of these moves for me has been just um, taking a chance, but leading with my heart. And that, for me, leaving media was, it was just time, right? 
Um, I had a day job for life if I wanted it. They liked me. I liked them. It was just that the work wasn't as good as up to snuff that I wanted. It wasn't up to snuff anymore. It was sure. just that simple, right? And sometimes I think people say, what's the conspiracy there? Well, <laughs> you don't you don't spend 23 years in one profession. It is a calling. I always had my phone at the side of my uh, my nightstand. My, I had a, my luggage is packed in my trunk for 23 years with mm-hmm. my passport. And then I moved my family uh, to India and covered South Asia. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to China. And in between, I was traveling by 80, 90, 100,000 kilometers a year. Like it's, it's a, hey, the Arab Spring is beginning. And I love covering the Middle East. I love that world, love the Muslim world. I went, you know, six weeks in Egypt and you're away from family. And, you know, I've been around gunfire and bombings eight separate times where people have injured or died. Hmm. And a couple of, a couple of times are really close for me, really close. And, um, and I remind myself that if you're going to take a chance in life, if you believe in something, do it. Yeah. Right. And there's a time where you have to be cautious in the middle of the road and try to seek both sides or two or three or four sides of a story. And that's when I was a journalist and I worked, I put my, and I put my, uh, my heart into it, my soul into it. And I risked my life. Right. I can't do any more than that. Yeah. And with time away from family. But when it's time to move on, it's time to move on. And so when I turn on a newscast today, I see younger faces. I see more diverse newscasts in the mainstream context. And I'm happy that... Um, and you were a trailblazer in that regard. And I think people should also recognize that as well. Well, I tried to be. You know, I, you, you're you an individual. You do your best every day. And But I think people also need to understand that people are entitled to their change. Mm-hmm. You know? You're not going to make the perfect decisions always. But I haven't regretted anything. Like, I'm proud of the fact that LNG is, is going to be... Um, uh, is is moving forward in this province? Why? Mm-hmm. Because it's part of that energy transition. I don't want natural gas burning a hundred years from now. Yeah. I want the real renewables. I want wind. I want solar. I want battery. Uh, I want things that I haven't heard of bef- now moving forward. Right. Mm-hmm. But to get there, natural gas is part of it. You may not like it, but when sixty percent of humanity is Asian. And it took 80 years for oil to surpass coal as a major energy source in this world. I think this transition is going to be faster because it's happening in real time. Natural gas is making that switch, but we're moving to renewables as well at the same time. The electric car population is going up. It's all happening at the same time. Yeah. But most days in suburbia and where 75% of British uh, Vancouverites live, it's still the Fortis bill. Natural gas is still being piped into your house. And, and you have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. If we can make some money off of some of this stuff, but let's put some of that money to subsidize electric car purchases. I'm, mm-hmm. I don't think we should be subsidizing $70,000 Tesla purchases, but a $35,000 leave, sure. If I can save you three grand, let's see if we can do that, right? Mm-hmm. And those, the, I mean, I think government does a poor job in saying, okay, we're going to make money off of this and we don't want it to be 100 years from, 100 years from now. We hope we don't have to sell natural gas. Um, but... Use those dollars and put them for something that's tangible that people can see. There's good coming from here, mm-hmm. right? And as long as British Columbians see a benefit to British Columbians, whether it's jobs, whether it's to uh, programs like healthcare, education, subsidizing tuition, whatever it may be, generally British Columbians get it, right? Yeah. It's it. Look, I'm not here because China needs energy. I don't think any British Columbian really cares if China has energy or it's China or, and, or its energy security needs, right? Yeah. And, and that's a broader question, right? Well, can we talk about China? Actually? Yeah, we can. I'm not going anywhere. Well, You're stuck with me now. <laughs> yeah. I do want to talk about China a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> the PC Liberals under Christy Clark really courted a lot of trade and investment with China. Mm-hmm. And it helped a lot of sectors at the time, especially forestry. And some might say real estate, at least for certain real estate firms. 
we're in this time where Canada has a bit of an adversarial relationship with China. And to sort of bring it home to you, you know, we've had this report where these United Front groups are going after journalists like Global Sam Cooper, and they're using political channels associated with Canadian politicians, as was the case with federal liberal digital government minister Joyce Murray. China also does have not a great human rights record, particularly when we consider the one to two million Uyghurs that are in re-education camps. Mm -hmm. We obviously have the two Michaels that just got charged with spying. This is an area of your expertise. You spent time in China. Mm -hmm. How do you see Canada and China's relationship moving forward? Well, I think there has to be a fundamental reset on our part. Um, The challenge we have, though, on the BC side, we handle trade. We don't do foreign policy, right? Sure. So I think you know, off the top of my head, I think we do about $24 billion worth of trade with uh, China collectively, nationally. And I think a third of that is British Columbia. So that impacts uh, men and women going to work in the natural gas fields mm-hmm. in, in Fort St. John. That impacts uh, my hometown of Williams Lake, where people um, in the forest industry, mm-hmm. uh, that'll potentially impact the Kootenays in regards to tourists. That impacts the great riding of Richmond, Queensboro that I represent in regards to the blueberry industry that's selling. Mm-hmm. It impacts the aquaculture industry on Vancouver Island. So China is everywhere in regards to trade. So we have to be very careful in the sense that you want to continue with that trade. Too many mortgages and are being paid with that trade in British Columbia. Too many livelihoods are at stake. And there's nothing wrong with trading with 60% of humanity, which is Asia, and a quarter of humanity, which is Chinese. That's fine. But in regards to what is happening now, I think uh, David Mulroney, who was the ambassador, Canada's ambassador to China when I was there, and he's been an outspoken um, individual in regards to uh, Canada and China need a fundamental reset where we can be strong in our values and asserting those values. And we are a smaller country economically, but we shouldn't be bullied either. These are our values, and this is what's going to happen. The broader issue that you brought up about the United Front First of all, you know, years ago, uh, when I was living in India, I used to interview a guy named Vikram Sood. Vikram ran India's foreign spy agency, RAW, Research and Analysis Wing. Okay. And, uh, you know, we used to meet for dinner once in a while, and I used to interview him um, quite a bit on geopolitical issues. And I love spooks because they got to do a 360-degree de- view of the world, just <laughs> military, economic, social, right? Sure. So they're fascinating people. And uh, he says, Jazz, understand one thing, all countries spy right? All countries try to wield influence. Uh, you know, a cocktail a party at the Canadian embassy in Beijing is about influence or at the very least networking mm-hmm. and meeting people, right? Uh, me having, sitting at an expat bar in Beijing and with an American who introduces his buddy who works for a private security firm is really saying, uh, he worked for the embassy, the guy next to him is probably CIA, right? I've gone to the Foreign Correspondence Club uh, in Beijing, and we'll have a monthly get-together, usually author or some report that's come out, have a discussion, and, and you get to mingle with folks. And there are Chinese spies there, right? I met a woman who was writing a book on uh, foreign journalists covering China. And more you talk to her, I used to realize, oh, you're a spy. You can just tell from a mile away, right? <laughs> so Maybe just, you can. I don't yeah, know yeah, if I can. It takes, <laughs> it, you, you, you can smell them, right? And not, not saying they aren't good. A lot of them are, are, are very good. So that's part and parcel of it. So in the influence campaign within the Chinese diaspora is occurring. Mm. It's occurring here locally, and it's occurring in Richmond. It's occurring in Vancouver. But it's predominantly focused upon uh, the Chinese diaspora. It doesn't focus on Jazz Johal uh, or other MLAs or members of parliament. Uh, certainly, they haven't come near me in, in, in any way. Now, when you get invited to an event, 
this and this association has invited you. Mm-hmm. You do not have the resources to do a deep dive on who's part of that organization, right? right? And a lot of these folks may be just volunteering um, because they want to be very passionate about Canada and China trade. But it may be have, maybe have one or two people who are part of that united front that are want are very proud to be Canadian, but do push and are very proud to be Chinese, and they push that Chinese agenda. Um, I don't think China's very good at it. Hmm. In regards to soft power, right? Okay, you got the Confucius centers, but how many people do you know that go to Confucius centers, right? They are, have difficulty with soft power, right? The average person uh, isn't enamored with China, one. But in America, we may disagree with their politics, but we love their jazz music. We love their baseball. We love their Hollywood movies. Uh, we love their universities, the Harvards and the Yales, right? Mm-hmm. And they have their Fulbright scholarship. The Brits have their Rhodes scholarship. The Brits have Oxford, right? Sure. The B- Brits have BBC. That's all. Indians have yoga. Yeah. Indians have Bollywood. <laughs> That's all the exertion of soft power, yeah. right? The Chinese have difficulty with that. I also think that you're seeing pushback to a certain degree to China within its own diaspora. Because they're speaking up more, uh, particularly on the Cantonese side with what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, I think uh, a younger generation of Chinese is speaking up. And I also think that generally we have a strong civil society here in, in British Columbia and in Canada. Mm-hmm. That means we have to stay focused and continue to see what's occurring. Um, but we do need to be exerting nationally, uh, at the very least articulating our values. This is who we are, right? You've kidnapped two of our citizens. And I've covered a court case uh, in China. And by covered, I mean I stood outside the gate yeah. <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the verdict to come out. In this case, it was a, it's a horrendous case. It was a woman who was uh, murdered here in British Columbia. Whoa. But the person who, uh, it was her boyfriend at the time, and he fled to China. And um, he huh. was convicted. Uh, but I, we weren't in court. We stood outside the court. That's the opaque court system. You don't know what's going to be said or done. So you didn't so, know what happened in the trial? Well, you knew eventually that this person got convicted. But in terms of how the no, proceedings went. No, no proceedings. The parents walked out and they yelled at us a little bit and they moved on. And that's the challenge with China. See, the China hmm. China is actually, if you simplify it, nothing can supersede the power of the Communist Party. Yeah. Not the Falun Gong, not a labor organization, not the church. Period. Full stop. Right. If a bishop has to be appointed in China, it won't be the Vatican that will appoint that bishop. It will be the Communist Party. Right. I have gone to illegal church services in people's homes and witnessed this church service. But there's always somebody looking at the peephole through the door to see the authorities aren't coming. Mm-hmm. Because, well, they'll allow you to preach. They'll allow you to worship your God. Nothing can challenge the supremacy of the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So the challenges we have now is, well, Huawei has technical prowess. When push comes to shove, it is still beholden to the Communist Party. Right, exactly. That's the challenge that we have with China. It's a one-party state, um, and it will not allow anybody to question them. And when I was leaving China at the end of 2011, Xi Jinping hadn't been officially announced as the leader, but it had already been stated he was going to be. So the Arab Spring was going on, and it just started. And I think at that point, they called it the Jade Revolution. Hmm. The communists were starting to clamp down. So journalists were being harassed that we hadn't seen before. Visas were not being approved for them, some of that were arriving. 
And in one case, myself or a cameraman or a producer, we drove out to the outskirts of Beijing to shoot jade flowers, right? No, uh, jasmine flowers. Sorry, it was a jasmine revolution. That's right, right, the jasmine revolution. So we were filming jasmine uh, flowers because they were banning them. That's how nervous they got. And it was some small village. We drive <laughs> back into Beijing, back into our office, and we get a phone call half an hour later from some security official. And our producer, uh, who speaks Mandarin, uh, took the call and 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 the voices started going higher. And I said, I said, what's going on? She goes, oh, they're mad at us for filming there and they want to know what we were doing. And I, and it, and she kept going on with them. And I just said, I said, Fandi, hang up. If they're going to boot me out of China, take a picture of a flower, go pound sand. That's fine with me. <laughs> Bring it, right? Like, it's just so stupid. Yeah. Somewhere along, you can't have a rational conversation for doing nothing but going to take a picture of a jasmine flower, which they were banning. And it's a legitimate um, news story, right? And it was a simple few pictures. Sometimes Chinese create more problems for themselves, Chinese authorities. Um, but you could see the clampdown starting, yeah. right? And in the last six years or so, well, seven, eight years, and I've talked to friends in China. They said, some have moved out. They're saying it's not what it used to be. So hmm. it's a different China under Xi Jinping. So how do we assert our values when certain industries, especially in British Columbia, are dependent on exports to China, and mm-hmm. Canada as a whole is more dependent on the cheap imports from yeah. China. So how well, do we so assert I, so our I, soft power yeah. or any type of power? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you know, we talk country. I think the seventh largest trading partner with China is Walmart. Or something like that. Yeah, we're down in like the 20s for them. Yeah. For us, they're our second. Yeah. And so you've raised a very good question. I think the pandemic has actually highlighted that. A, supply chains. I think some of them will be returning. But ultimately, I think I have to watch Jazz Johal, Amir, and all your listeners' consumption patterns because that says everything. Hmm. Are you willing to pay a little bit more? Or are you going to go down to the dollar store and buy the cheaper product, hmm. right? I'm not saying you shouldn't go to a dollar store because we all do, but it comes down to, are you willing to spend the extra dollars for those uh, products that are uh, made here uh, or at least in different countries? It also means Canadians have to be a bit more um, adventurous in chasing emerging markets where the returns aren't always very good. India is a classic example of that. I think forest products, there was a forest, BC Wood office there in 2001 when I did my first special in India and then they shut it down and now you have sort of a temporary one and I know I know one entrepreneur who started with just a, you know, one uh, container load that he sent to India. I think he's up to 12 now a year that he sends but this is one guy who's done it individually but we need to have a... a, a Pardon judge? No, not him. No, 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 no somebody else. Um, but it's it's um, it's those types of conversations we have to have because I don't think the U.S. in regards to forestry is going to return to what it was before simply because of politics. Every few years you have the softwood dispute. And, yeah. And the companies that have property here, they also have property in the U.S. so they can balance that out a little bit. So I think we have to be a bit more adventurous in seeking out those different markets. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you as a consumer have to make a decision as to what you're willing to pay and why you're going to pay for it, right? Um, there's not going to be a war between China and the U.S. simply because China would never go to war with their biggest customer. You can't; They can't afford it, right? right. And, and so I don't buy that. But this is a different China, much more aggressive China. And you're seeing it all over. You're seeing it with Japan. You're seeing it with Korea. You're seeing them bully Vietnam uh, in regards to um, uh, international waters there and, and harassing some of their fishermen. You're seeing in fistfights that 
that bro- broke out in Ladakh in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bigger challenge there because they built a port in Sri Lanka. They're building one in, in Pakistan. So India feels they're a bit uh, surrounded by the string of pearls. Mm-hmm. As they Probably like right to, to think so, to yeah, be honest. And, and at the same time, we also, as British Columbians, have to remind ourselves a very important thing. There's a difference between the Chinese government and Chinese people. Mm-hmm. I feel so at home among Chinese people. I felt home in Beijing. Have you viewed Beijing as home? I loved it. I love my time there just as much as I love my time in Delhi mm-hmm. and living in India. So they're very warm people, open people, and and some of the racist stuff that you've seen now really you know makes you angry and and uh, sometimes you wonder about human beings. Yeah, I agree. But we got to separate the policies of China because our strength at the end of the day is actually our Chinese diaspora, right? That lives here because the Chinese community is the only ethnic community that I know. If I ever go to their events, they begin every event with the singing of the national anthem, Canadian hmm. national anthem. South Asians don't do that. No. I don't know anybody that doesn't mean they all have wonderful events, but the Chinese community is the only one that I know that always starts with a Canadian national anthem. Do you think that's part of the worry that because there is a segment of the population that conflates the Chinese government and the CCP with all Chinese people, that some politicians don't feel very comfortable to be very critical of China. That's part of it, I think. There's there's not a there's a soft a simplistic understanding of Chinese people and Chinese culture, hmm. and uh, and you see it here with our political class. Sometimes I kind of shake my head, going, "They're they're more complex as a culture and people. They're a five thousand year old civilization. Treat them as such, mm-hmm. right? And uh, utterances from the Chinese government aren't necessarily uh, respective of those that are new here." those that of uh, Cantonese, uh, that speak Cantonese from Hong Kong, or those are second and third generation Canadians mm-hmm. of Chinese descent. All right? I mean, I, I'll give you an example. In Richmond, we have this issue of birth tourism. So foreigners that come to this country predominantly have their kids here, and because of a, a law that we have called juste soli, meaning of the soil, if a child is born here, they naturally get Canadian citizenship. So you have people marketing this, has come to have and and we will they pay they pay the hospital, but there's a whole network set up on this yeah. stuff, right? And I won't burden your uh, 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 listeners to this, but basically one out of four kids are foreign born, and so basically affluent mm-hmm. individuals come here. They're paying the doctor some amount of money. I don't know what it is. They pay the hospital about ten thousand uh, for a natural birth, and at the end of it, they walk away with a Canadian passport for their kid. Now the kid will move back to China. Speak the language, learn the culture, but there's an opportunity for them to leave. Now, and there's people who are saying, why Don't. can't we shut that down? Because it's because it's mostly federal. <laughs> okay, and we haven't gotten but, around it. But, and I, I didn't mean the provincial government. I just meant no. in general. Yeah, like. it, we um, the only reason we we could do is just to charge them so much they wouldn't come. Yeah. We haven't done that. The real issue is federal, which is they come and why don't and, they shut it down? Because they just won't do it yet. They just <laughs> think it's a small enough problem. But one out of four kids is happening at Children's. It's happening in Burnaby. It's happening in Toronto now. But basically, uh, this is not. And, and people said, "Oh, don't bring this up. It's, you're going to annoy the Chinese voters." I said, "No, I don't think so." I said, "As an immigrant, it offends me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure as an immigrant, it offends them because yeah. vast majority of working class people have made something of themselves in this country." And it's not a race issue. It's actually uh, one of class, which is uh, an affluent one or two percent of society. You can feel they can brem here, automatically get a Canadian passport. Right? There's got to be a value to that thing. Right? Mm-hmm. So those are that's one glaring example where people say, "Don't say anything. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna offend your Chinese voters." Well, I'm sorry. It's the right thing to do is call it out. Mm-hmm. So it's been my one of my mini local campaigns that I've been talking to folks about because it's it's a complex 
uh, community in the sense that it comes from a very different background. But it, I just feel so at home with Chinese, the Chinese community. You know, I felt really weird when I moved back to Canada. The fork felt so weird. <laughs> I'm so used to chopsticks, yeah. right? It felt odd eating from a fork. That's funny. <laughs> and yeah, it was. It's uh, it was, uh, and I tell you, especially Indian, those of us of Indian descent, uh, they love Bollywood movies there. Like, okay, shit, wow. The movie Three Idiots. Remember years ago that comedy, uh, Amir Khan did. I think he made a hundred million dollars in revenue just in China alone. Whoa. Yeah, like they, 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 you've talked to Chinese folks uh, in China, and they're like, "Oh yeah, watch this movie, a movie," and it's like it blows your mind. Huh? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's fascinating, and I didn't realize. When I met, called my dad up in Williams, like I said, Dad, uh, you know, he was in India at the time. I said, I'm moving to China. I just wanted to let you know. He goes, oh. I said, I guess I'm the first Joe Hall to move to China in our family. He goes, oh, you're number two. I go, what? He goes, your your great-grandfather's brother was a laborer in Shanghai in the 1930s. <laughs> really? I, I said, where the heck did that come from? <laughs> I didn't know that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A piece of trivia. Yeah, yeah. Jazz, we are way over time. Are we? We are. Oh, I was just getting started. But that's what we do here sometimes. yeah. yeah. I appreciate you being here. Before I let you go, how do people follow you? What's your call to action? Please advertise or promote anything you'd like before we wrap up. You know, this is where I'm supposed to give you my social media feed and please join. But you'll find that. You're all smart (laughs) listeners. I, I would just say just stay engaged. Stay engaged because we're in a very unique time in our period. British Columbians are hurting. Help where you can. If you can volunteer, volunteer. If you can donate, donate. If you can eat out once in a while and help out your local businesses, please do. Number one. Number two. Do not allow this Black Lives Matter um, issue that we are all grappling with die. Because these things come and they're red hot in regards to media attention and it just goes away. Mm -hmm. I think Gen X and Millennials and Gen Z really have a fundamental role to play in regards to the changing of this system. I'm not saying baby boomers don't. Of course they do. We have to work on this collectively. But I want British Columbians collectively to think it's not an American. It's not just an American issue. It's not. We have to do better because today, when you look at corporate boards, after all these years, maybe 20% representation for women, it's not good enough. I tell you, I get up most days in question period, I'm asking questions of old white men. <laughs> Even though they're uh, the NDP of a, you know, I would say is a diverse caucus, the bulk of the powers of position are still white guys in the, who are ministers, right? I walk into my own caucus and it doesn't reflect the Canada that I live in. After 16 years of government, all mm-hmm. the levers of power, we could have done better as well. Mm-hmm. So this, that is not a partisan attack on my part. I think we all have more to do. So what I would ask your listeners more than anything else is just stay engaged. Do not, make, do not get cynical about politics. It's tough. Um, but for me, after 23 years of journalism, I left an optimist. And like I said, when I leave politics, I want to leave an optimist. There's more work to do. And we got to get there together. So thank you so much for having me here today. Jazz, this was awesome. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Good, nice to meet you too. It was my pleasure. Yeah. People, what a show thanks to my guest. He's an incredible journalist, a very sharp politician, the MLA for Richmond, Queensboro. He is Jazz Joe Hall. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>